All right, let me have a word of prayer for us, and then we'll begin. Father, we give thanks to you for the privilege and the opportunity to gather together as your people this morning to um, sing praises and exalt your name, to open up your word, uh, to be enthralled by it, to be challenged by it, to be convicted by it. We pray that you'll uh, allow it to have its work in us, that we would allow it your word to have its work in us. We would not be just hearers of the word, but doers of it. Father, we pray for your blessing on our time uh, this morning as we begin this class. Uh, we pray that you'll be glorified in all that's done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my name's Brian Beamer. Most of you already know me already, so um, if you didn't, that's who I am. I am one of the elders here at uh, Crossway Bible Church. And welcome to our How to Study the Bible class. Um, this, I'll, be, I'll be teaching this class for the next six weeks, Lord willing. And um, over the next six weeks, we're going to consider the most important methods of understanding how the Bible fits together. Uh, we're going to be um, looking at the Bible's structure and literary genres we're going to look at some specific study tools and methods to allow us to better understand the Bible. So um, be sure to follow along with your handout for reference. And if you have any follow-up questions for me at any time, my email's on the back of that um, handout. Feel free to email me, um, and I'll try to get back to you. Um, our goal for this class is to provide you with some, some tools and an approach to studying God's word that will foster a desire to spend more time with it, allowing it to richly dwell within you. So by teaching you how to read and understand the Bible, we want to equip you to grow in your love for God and grow in your discernment and how to live in, as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. So <clears throat> having said all that, um, I want to keep this class in perspective. It's only six weeks long. Uh, so there's a lot of material to cover. We can only cover so much. Um, so for the most part, we'll deal, deal in big ideas. Uh, kind of think of this as um, unlimited frequent flyer miles, right? Um, I'm going to show you a lot of fun places to visit. Um, I'm going to tell you about some of the local customs that you need to be aware of and maybe avoid. Um, and I'm going to give you all the insider tips to being a wise traveler. Uh, so, um, but it's up to you to do the exploring. That's your job. Uh, so to put those principles that we'll cover into practice. Um, we're going to begin with some practical matters. Uh, you can also think of this class like a driver's ed class. Um, when you go out for driving lessons, there's, you know, there's certain rules uh, that govern the road and govern the operations of, of how we drive. And you arrive at a yield sign, <clears throat> you give the right of way. And if you want to pull out from the curb, you turn your blinker on. And however, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if that's still something they teach in driver's ed because I don't know that I see that a lot today where people are actually using their, their turn signals. But the point is you, you follow the rules and the, use the common sense uh, that you have in every situation as far as driving uh, on the road. So studying the Bible is very similar to driving. There are simple, some simple, undeniable, well-established rules uh, for how to read well and study well. And common sense always needs to be used, especially when we take into account the context for each book. The way... We like to teach uh, people to study is through a means called the inductive Bible study method. The inductive Bible study method. So the word inductive can sound confusing. Um, and, and actually, when you think about it, let me just ask you guys. If you were to tell me, what's the difference between inductive reason and, uh, reasoning and deductive reasoning, what would you say? What's the difference between deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning. See, not as easy as you think, right? Go ahead. Inductive because you're looking at the flow of it. 
Okay. That's pretty good. It's a pretty good definition. Anyone else would try? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's more a little more specific uh, uh, um, a way to approach it. Yeah, good. So the word inductive can sound confusing, but it's a way to describe how we reason. Um, it's not a word we use often. Uh, you, you've heard of deductive reasoning. And the difference between the two is sometimes hard to think through, but it really has to do with the starting point of your reasoning. Deductive reasoning starts with the premise or the theory. Um, it begins with general information, and it comes to reach a specific conclusion. Uh, inductive reasoning refers to reasoning that takes starts with specific information and makes broader generalizations that, it, that are considered probable allowing for the fact that the conclusion may not always be 100% accurate. <clears throat> for example, a good example of inductive reasoning would be, I always leave 15 minutes early to get to my appointment on time. Uh, my appointment is in 30 minutes and it takes me 15 minutes to drive there. Therefore, I should arrive early for my appointment if I leave now. That's a good example of inductive reasoning. Um, notice the specific information about leaving early and the drive time, but also notice that I said I should arrive early. It's considered probable, but may not be 100% accurate. I'm, I may get held up by a train. I may uh, get behind someone who's had a wreck. Um, so it's considered probable, but not 100% accurate. So let me repeat what inductive reasoning is. Inductive reasoning refers to reasoning that takes specific information and makes a broader generalization that is considered probable, allowing for the fact that the conclusion may not always be 100% accurate. So when we apply this approach in the Bible, we're looking at what we see in the text in order to learn what it is saying. Inductive Bible study is about a faithful exercise of coming to the Bible without an agenda, and reading the passage in order to establish God's agenda. Or as my father-in-law would say, are you coming to the scripture let, to let it make up your mind, or are you coming to the scripture with your mind already made up? Um, so we're letting the Bible determine God's agenda. Any questions so far at this point? Yeah, deductive reasoning, reasoning starts with a, a theory. Uh, yeah, and then, it's, and, it's, and, then it, and then it's looking for evidences around in various things to draw the, the specific conclusion. I don't know if that clarifies it any more. Okay. Any other questions? Specific information. Yeah. 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 The starting point is the big key in determining the differences, I think, in between deductive reasoning and, and inductive reasoning. Inductive starts with specific information, deductive reasoning starts with a theory or a premise. And we're gonna we're gonna outline that in a little bit more how to do inductive Bible study here. So yeah, any other questions? All right. So how to do inductive Bible study? So first, always begin your Bible studies with prayer. Um, we 
desperately need the Holy Spirit's help to understand God's word. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14, it says, but a natural man does not accept the depths of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. And of course, if we're a believer, we should be able to understand the scriptures spiritually um, because they're spiritually examined, but we need the spirit's work to help us, uh, to enlighten us and to help us to uh, learn it well. Um, After that, Inductive study can really be divided into three distinct phases. Um, Number one, observation. Number two, interpretation. And number three, application. So observation, interpretation, application. Or to phrase it another way, what is the text saying? What does the text mean? And then what does this text mean for me? Not what does this text mean to me? What does this text mean for me in application? And the phases are progressive in nature in that you always begin with the observation, you move to interpretation, and then only then can you move on to application. So we're going to look at observation and interpretation today, and then we'll look at application next Sunday. So observation. Observation, uh, the goal of observation is to interrogate the text. That's the goal. You want to answer the five W's, also known as the journalistic questions. And what are they? Who, what, when, where, and why? Who is speaking to whom? What are they saying? When and where are they saying it? Um, why do they say they are saying it? And what's the context? And, and this can go on and on. There's all kinds of who, what, when, where, why questions that you can ask. Things you can do to answer these questions include marking key persons, key words, key phrases, making lists, watching for contrasts and comparisons as well as noting expressions of time and geographic locations. All of these help us to interrogate the text so that we have a rich understanding of what the text contains. I, I think you'll find that observation, good observation, is what makes for good Bible study. Um, To illustrate this, let me read to you uh, the firsthand account of an early 20th century biology student. Uh, Some of you ladies who went through the Jen Wilkins uh, study in the conversation series a couple years ago may remember this. It's taken from Hans Fenzel's book, Unlocking the Scriptures. Uh, It's one of the resources on the back of your handout that I've put there. Um, What this biology student says has, has really nothing to do with studying the Bible per se, I don't even know if he was a Christian, but the lesson he learned has everything to do with good Bible study. Um, So this is a um, story entitled Agassiz's and the Fish by a student. Uh, Agassiz's was the founder of the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology and a Harvard professor. Uh, The following account was written by one of his students, Samuel Scudder, under the title Agassiz's and the Fish. It was more than 15 years ago that I entered the laboratory of Professor Agassiz's and told him I had enrolled my name in the scientific school as a student of natural history. He asked me a few questions about my object in coming, my antecedents generally, the mode in which I afterwards proposed to use the knowledge I might acquire, and finally, whether I wished to study any special branch. To the latter, I replied that while I wished to be well-grounded in all departments of zoology, I purposed to devote myself specifically to insects. When do you wish to begin, he asked. Now, I replied. This seemed to please him, and with an energetic, very well, he reached from a shelf a huge jar of specimens and yellow alcohol. 
Take this fish, he said, and look at it. We call it a hamulon. By and by, I will ask you what you've seen. With that, he left me. I was conscious of a passing feeling of disappointment, for gazing at a fish did not commend itself to an ardent entomologist. In ten minutes, I had seen all that I could be seen in that fish and started in search of the professor, who had, however, left the museum. And when I returned, after lingering over some of the odd animals stored in the upper apartment, my specimen was dry all over. I dashed the fluid over the fish as if to resuscitate it from a fainting fit and looked with anxiety for a return of a normal sloppy appearance. This little excitement over, nothing was to be done but return to a steadfast gaze at my mute companion. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around, looked it in the face, ghastly, from behind, beneath, above, sideways, and at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. At an early hour, I concluded that lunch was necessary. So, with infinite relief, the fish was carefully replaced in the jar, and for an hour, I was free. On my return, I learned that Professor Agassizes had been at the museum, but had gone and would not return for several hours. My fellow students were too busy to be disturbed by continued conversation. Slowly, I drew forth that hideous fish, and with a feeling of desperation, again looked at it. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were interdicted. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish, it seemed a most limited field. I pushed my fingers down its throat to see how sharp its teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. Just then, the professor returned. That is right, said he. A pencil is one of the best eyes. I'm glad to notice, too, that you keep your specimen wet and your bottle corked. With these encouraging words, he added, well, what was it like? He listened attentively to my brief rehearsal of the structure of parts whose names were still unknown to me, the, the fringed gill arches and movable operculum, uh, the pores of the head, fleshly lips, the lidless eyes, the lateral line, the spinous fin, and forked tail, the compressed and arched body. When I had finished, he waited as if expecting more, and then with an air of disappointment, you've not looked very carefully. Why, he continued more earnestly, you haven't seen one of the most conspicuous features of the animal, which is as plainly before your eyes as the fish itself. Look again, look again. And he left me to my misery. I was piqued, I was mortified, still more of that wretched fish. Now I set myself to the task with a will and discovered one new thing after another until I saw how just the professor's criticism had been. The afternoon passed quickly, and when towards its close, the professor inquired, do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. That is next best, said he earnestly, but I won't hear you now. Put away your fish and go home. Perhaps you'll be ready with a better answer in the morning. I will examine you before you look at the fish. This was disconcerting. Not only must I think of my fish all night, studying without the object before me, what this unknown but most visible feature might be, but also without reviewing my new discoveries. I must give an exact account of them the, the next day. I had a bad memory, so I walked home by the Charles River in a distracted state with my two perplexities. The cordial greeting from the professor the next morning was reassuring. Here was a man who seemed to be quite as anxious as I that I should see for myself what he saw. Do you perhaps mean, I asked, that the fish has symmetrical sides with paired organs? His thoroughly pleased, of course, of course, repaid the wakeful hours of the previous night. 
After he had discoursed most happily enthusiastically, as he always did, upon the importance of this point, I ventured to ask what I should do next. Oh, look at your fish, he said, and left me again to my own devices. In a little more than an hour, he returned and heard my new catalog. That is good, that is good, he repeated, but that is not, not all. Go on. And so for three long days, he placed that fish before my eyes, forbidding me to look at anything else or to use any artificial aid. Look, look, look was his repeated injunction. This was the best entomological lesson I ever had, a lesson whose influence was extended to the details of every subsequent study. A legacy the professor has left to me as he left to many others of inestimable value, which we could not buy, with which we cannot part. The fourth day, a second fish of the same group was placed beside the first, and I was bidden to point out the resemblances and differences between the two. Another and another followed, until the entire family lay before me, and a whole legion of jars covered the table and surrounding shelves. The odor had become a pleasant perfume. And even now, the sight of an old six-inch worm-eaten cork brings fragrant memories. The whole group of hamulons was thus brought into review, and whether engaged upon the dissection of the internal organs, preparation and examination of the bony framework, or the description of the various parts, Agassiz's training in the method of observing facts and their orderly arrangements arrangement was ever accompanied by the urgent exhortation not to be content with them. Facts are stupid things, he would say, until brought into connection with some general law. At the end of eight months, it was almost with reluctance that I left these friends and turned to insects. But what I gained by this outside experience has been of greater value than years of later investigation in my favorite groups. So what relevance does this student's experience have for Bible study? Uh, the main point I want to impress upon you this morning uh, with the story that I just read is that the Bible, the Bible study itself takes time and effort. We can't expect everything to simply pop out of the text. We need focused effort when we come to the scriptures. So what does good observation look like? Well, let me give you a, a few guidelines. Some of the, these are written in, in your handout there. Um, number one, observe with a pencil in hand. <clears throat> Excuse me. Or a pen or a laptop or an iPad or an iPad pencil or something that you can mark with. Just like Agassiz's student, you want to write out everything that you see and you observe in the text. Number two, it can help to print out your text so that you can write, out, write on it directly. Print it out so you can mark all over it. Uh, some of you, if, if you follow uh, some like John Piper and uh, uh, some other guys, you might see some posts where they'll go to a manuscript and you're going to see circles around words here and lines to other words and and that's what they're doing. They're making observations of the text and they're drawing it out right on the, right on the text. Number three, observe patterns in the text. So these could be comparisons. They could be contrasts. Contrasts are super helpful. Uh, parallelisms, all those things like that, for example. So observe patterns in the text. Um, number four, mark linking words like for, so that, therefore, and but. Link all those together. Summarize what they're there for. For example, a therefore should lead you to summarize what comes before the word and then figure out the connection between your text and the section before it. 
Number five, uh, write down connections you see to other passages in Scripture. Uh, these could be direct quotations that, that are noted in the text. Uh, they could be allusions, uh, so long as they seem to be deliberate allusions by the author. Number six, write down allusions to time or place. Um, what significance does this have? Uh, write that down. Number seven, uh, mark terms of conclusion. So when the text says thus, or for this reason, and what that significance might, might have. Uh, number eight, write down questions. Uh, these can be questions of fact. Uh, where was Susa? Or they can be questions of speculation. Why is the remnant of Israel in great trouble and shame? Uh, try to get the best answers you can for your questions. <clears throat> Number nine, one of the best tools for observation is memorization. So put your passage in your head and you'll probably notice as you call it to mind through the day, these You'll be making observations and mulling it over. So let's practice. So if you open up your, your note, your handout there, um, there's Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3 is down there on the inside of the, the handout. If you didn't get a handout, they're right outside the door there and right on top of the cabinet over here. Um, so take five minutes. Use these principles of observation that I just uh, shared with you and write down uh, what you've observed in the text individually, and then after five minutes, uh, we're gonna compile them. I'll let you just talk through them out loud. So, five minutes, make observations of the text. Okay, five minutes goes by fast when you're trying to make observations of a text, so you probably haven't got into it you know, too deeply. Um, and you can spend a very long time making observations of the text, and it's super, super helpful. Um, and so right now, uh, we're going we're gonna to just, if I had a whiteboard up here, I'd try to write them all down as you, as you spoke them out. But let's just, um, let's just start, and uh, who'd like to start with some observations from your text? Someone starts out. Okay, written by Nehemiah. These are the words of Nehemiah. Absolutely. Good. Next. Okay. Yep. Well, some, some people are in captivity, right? Yeah. Other observations? Or questions. Yeah, that's, that's, questions are also um, part of observation, right? You may not know the answer to it, and you need to write it down. What else? I'm sorry? Okay, so the, it's the month Kislev. What, what's the month Kislev? What does that correspond to in our calendar year? Um, that's a great question. Excellent. What else? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I had, I had circled Jews who escaped and remained from captivity and connected that with the word remnant in verse 3. They're synonymous, right? <clears throat> All right, what else? Jim? Yeah. Where's Susa the capital of? Yeah. And, you know, another observation is Susa is a capital. But also, where is Susa the capital of? There's a lot of questions that you can ask around that. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. Is there any significance that is that is mentioned? Um, yeah. Why is he there? Yeah. 
Is he captive there? Great questions. Right, absolutely. Is this 20th year of some certain captivity? Is it 20th year of some certain person's reign? Uh, what, it, what is it? Yeah, great question. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, what period of captivity is this? Yeah, absolutely. Jess? Yeah, would the original audience even had that question? They would, would have, they have understood? Yeah, that's a good question. What else? Okay, yeah, yeah. He's got uh, Hanani as, as a brother. Um, did anybody write down, is Hanani one of his literal brothers or is Hanani one of a, another brother? Uh, it's, you know, like my spiritual brother, my, my, my kinsman. Anybody write that question now? Yeah. Okay, great. Right, yeah. Why did they come to Susa, right? And why, why how did, how did the, his brothers, why are they not in captivity with him? And why are, why are, are they part of the ones who escaped and remained from the captivity? So all those types of questions. Yes? Yeah. Excellent. Yes. So the, the questions that were asked, that, that Nehemiah asked, the specific questions, were actually specifically answered in verse 3. That's an observation from the text. Excellent. Okay, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting observation. Yeah, so he asked them about what was going on. They didn't come and just tell him. He, he asked them, well, now, wh why was that? Is it because that was the first thing on Nehemiah's heart? And that's so he asked them before they even had an opportunity to, to tell him? Uh, or did they not, was it not important to them? So that's, that's a good question, good observation. Excellent. Good. Yeah, good observation. Good question. Yeah, when you're only reading three verses, you don't have any context. So, yeah, great questions, super questions. All right, so you guys can, yeah, one more. That's a good question, and the text context may answer some of those. So, great questions. All right. So, those are observations, and we didn't answer a lot of those right now. That that those answers come when you start getting into interpretation, right? Some some of those now. Some of you are going to, when you do study, you're going to make those observations. You're going to immediately go try to find the answer, right? Um, so, and that's that's okay. You know, just figuring out that and trying to keep it progressive 
making those observations first and then interpreting all of, all of your, your data. So first step is observation of a specific text and from there we move on to interpretation. So interpretation is next. If observation tells us what the text says, interpretation tells us what the text means and mainly what it meant to its original audience. So let me give you seven guidelines for interpretation. Number one, context rules. Context reigns, context is king. Um, there's all kinds of uh, synonyms there, but context is very, very important. Uh, your interpretation should be consistent with the theme, the purpose, and the structure of the book within it, which it's found, right? Um, if it isn't, you've made a wrong turn somewhere. Ask yourself if you're considering the historic and cultural context, or are you ignoring these things to get a more pleasing interpretation, right? Those, all of those things matter. Context, 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 kind of like location, location, location in regard to business, right? In regard to studying the scripture, it's context, context, context. Number two, let scripture interpret scripture. Always seek the full counsel of the word of God. If your interpretation runs contrary to a uh, clear established doctrine, uh, clear established doctrine of the faith, then you need to reconsider your interpretation. Uh, no part of the Bible will ever undermine another part of the Bible. Uh, sometimes sorting, it, uh, sorting out what initially seems like a contradiction can be a lot of work. But this is the point of studying the Bible. And I think as you read the Bible, you're, you're going to be amazed at how consistent its teaching, teachings are uh, on things like sin and the nature of man and the character of God. Um, <clears throat> just a, a quick personal uh, note here, I'm letting in Scripture interpret Scripture. Um, well, probably... 15, 20 years ago, I was meeting with a guy consistently for discipleship. He was a new believer, just hungry for the word. And he would take his Bible and he would uh, read it through and he would write down questions in the margin. And then when we would get together, he would just open up his Bible and ask questions that he'd written down in, in his margin that he didn't know the answer to. And um, as we continued to meet over a couple year period, I would see that he, he was writing questions in a different color. And it's because it was a different time. You know, like he had two or three different colors in there already. And because it was the next time he wrote, read through the Bible, he used a different color pen to write his questions down. And then I saw some in his margin where he had lined out the, the, the question. And I asked him about that. I said, okay, well, you, you lined out that question. He goes, oh yeah, I got that answer because of this passage of scripture over here, right? As he was reading, just by default, after he'd read it through several times, scripture interpreted scripture and answered his question, he had no longer had the question. So let scripture interpret scripture. Number three, never base your convictions on an obscure passage of scripture. An obscure passage is one in which the meaning isn't clear, even when the proper principles of interpretation are used Again, employ the full counsel of God's word. Number four, interpret scripture as the author intends you to. Uh, take the words you read in the Bible at face value. Often that means interpreting it literally. Most often it means interpreting it literally. Um, the, so by, what it, by, by which I mean what it really says, right? Um, if it says God created the heavens and the earth, it means exactly that. But of course, not all the Bible intends to be read with absolute literalness. Um, later in this class, we're going to talk through how we need to take into account figures of speech and language and differences in genre and imagery and symbolism to understand the author's intent, right? The Bible describes um, God as having uh, the arm of the Lord is not shortened, right? Well, we also know God's a spirit. How, God has an arm. 
Um, well, what do we mean by that? Well, that's an anthropomorphism, right? It's a way for man to understand God in human terms. Um, we're going to talk about those types of things, but the Bible was written for the common man in the most common languages of the time so that it could be understood. God wants you to know him better, and that's why he wrote it. So it was written so that you might know him. We shouldn't feel compelled to spiritualize what we read. Number five, look for the main message of the passage. What's the main message of the passage? Always keep in mind what the author's trying to communicate. What's the main idea? What's the clear purpose? And any conclusions you come to must come from and support this main idea. Number six, study the Old Testament in light of Jesus and the New Testament. Ask if and how Old Testament passages might fit within the teaching of the New Testament. Here's some questions you might ask. Does this passage fit in the timeline of redemptive history? Does this passage point to Jesus? Does this truth about Old Testament Israel relate to the, the New Testament idea of the church? If so, how? Is this passage foundational for an understanding of New Testament Christianity? Uh, does any New Testament passage help me answer these questions? So, studying the Old Testament in light of Jesus and the New Testament is really important. Number seven, adopt the New Testament's attitude toward the Old Testament. Uh, train your brain to make connections between New Testament passages and what has come before in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Ask these three questions. Is this passage a fulfillment of something promised in the Old Testament? Is this New Testament idea different from, an, from or similar to an Old Testament teaching? And does this New Testament passage clarify, unveil, fulfill, or amplify something from the Old Testament. It's, it's important, and this, this is another reason why versions and, um, are, are important, what type of uh, Bible you're reading, whether it's a, a formal equivalent or a dynamic equivalent, uh, because there are, are a lot of, when formal equivalents are like word-for-word -word translations where a dynamic equivalent is a thought-for-thought -thought translation. And so sometimes when um, people try to, to translate the scriptures and they do it in a thought-by-thought -thought pattern, they may disconnect a concept that is very, very important between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, for example, you might, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, a lot, you're going to see first fruits. First fruits, first fruits. Uh, in the New Testament, you're going to see first fruits, right? There's a connection between the new and the old. But if you use the New Living Translation, if you use a, a, a dynamic equivalent, they're going to translate that as the first of the harvest and uh, translate it differently in different passages. They're not going to maintain that word, first fruits, and you're going to lose the connection that the Bible automatically had there between those two concepts or that concept. So th there's, there's, these types of things are very important when it comes to understanding uh, the scripture. So that's important when you, when you start looking at the New Testament and it, has this, and it talks about a concept. That's just one, one uh, example. There's other examples too of how the, the concept in the New Testament may be separated from the old by, um, just by a different translation. So those are seven principles, seven guidelines uh, that are essential to interpretation. And it's only after we properly interpret a passage that we can move on 
to applying it. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. But let's go back to our passage in Nehemiah there and see what it would have meant to its initial audience. So <clears throat> when, you, when you start asking these questions, does, any, did anybody, does anybody want to answer any of the questions? Let's just kind of start at the beginning here, um, uh, for lack of a better place. Um, it happened in the month Kislev. Does anybody know when Kislev is? Yeah, November to December. So the, they had, um, the Jewish people had two different ways of uh, looking at their calendar. Uh, they had a, um, oh, I jotted this down. So, so they had a civil year and they had a, an ecclesiastical year. And both of those years started at a different time period. Um, so Kislev was the time and it pretty much ended around the time of Hanukkah um, would end. So our November, December time frame. Yeah. Um, Susa, was that, where's that the capital of? Where's it at? Persia. Yeah. Um, Susa is about uh, 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf. It uh, is in southern Iran right now. Um, you start asking those questions. Um, let's see. Was Hanani one of his literal brothers or one of his... One of his uh, kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're all like, you know, they're all from the same family anyway, right? Do, do we know? Is there any in indication in the context? Okay. I think that's the first indication that he might be an actual brother. Absolutely. So you see right there in the text, one of my brothers and some men from Judah came, right? So that, but you know, could have been one of his brothers and, and not been other men, could be from another place. So, um, but when you go to chapter seven, um, you'll see that Hanani is one of his brothers and he gets promoted to uh, another position. And so the broader context of the book will actually answer that as well. Okay. Yeah. But it's a good question. It's a good question and it needs to be answered, right? All right. Um, any, any other questions that, that you have you think you've got the answer to that, that were that were put out there? I don't want to just go with all the questions I'm thinking of here. Why, why is Nehemiah in captivity and his brothers aren't, aren't in captivity? I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I need to spend some time. Philip, do you remember that when you were teaching through that? I did. Yeah. Okay. Now, does anybody want to take a stab at what they think is the main point of the text? Right. That's one of these. Um, one of the the um, the points that we're trying to get is we're trying to find the the main the main point of the text. Number five. Look for the main message of the passage. What's the main message of this passage? That's good. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Okay. Walls broken down. Gates have been burned with fire. Okay. Um, I think you need to look. We need to look a little bit more deeply for the main main message there. What? Uh, anybody? Any other ideas? Thoughts?
So overall, um, uh, and I may be wrong about this too, um, I don't spend a, a whole lot of time trying to discern what the main point of this text was, but I, I think it's Nehemiah's concern uh, for the remnant and for Jerusalem. I think that's the main point of this text. Nehemiah's concerned for the remnant and for Jerusalem itself. And I think the things you guys have brought up are good, like the subpoints of the, the text when, when he asks and he answers. Um, so the, those that are in captivity, they're in, in great calamity and reproach for those who are in captivity. And then, of course, in regard to Jerusalem, it's broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So you've got two kind of uh, responses there, one in regard to the remnant, one in regard to the Jerusalem, and there's two responses there for both. So basically, the people are in shambles, the city's in shambles, and the city's also defenseless. They have no wall and they have no gates. And this is really concerning for Nehemiah. So you're looking to get to the, the main point of the passage. All right, so that's today's uh, lesson, observation and interpretation. And next Sunday, Lord willing, we're gonna move on towards application and look at that. Uh, so um, let me pray and uh, you guys can be dismissed for today. Father, we give thanks to you for the opportunity to um, just to complete this little exercise and and observation and interpretation of the scriptures. And uh, Father, we pray for your blessing on, on this time and upon the Sunday school class, Lord, that it will be used, uh, even if in one, one person's heart and life, to uh, further their hunger and desire for your word and to uh, look deeply and, and uh, thoroughly at your word, to make observations and to find the answers uh, to, to what the scripture meant for the uh, the people uh, to whom it was written originally, uh, to its original audience. And so, uh, Father, we pray for your blessing uh, upon the entire class, upon the entire uh, six weeks, and ask that you'll uh, use it for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.